Welcome to Reformations, the Meter Center podcast. Today it's my great pleasure to welcome Richard Muller, Emeritus Professor of Historical Theology at Calvin Theological Seminary. Richard, I'm so pleased we could sit down together and have this time to chat. This is great. So we're going to talk a little bit about your interest in Reformation theology, the work of the Meter Center, and as we go along, if you have things you want to add that I don't get to, just insert them as we go. So let's start with a little bit of background. What led to your interest in Reformation theology? Because I know you trained as a pastor first, but then this sort of switch or move, slide, how we want to describe no. that? Actually, no, the order is opposite. Uh-huh. Um, I majored in history and in, in, in college um, and thought of myself as an early modernist. Mm-hmm. Um, interest in 18th century and a little bit of 17th century. Then I went to seminary and maintained the historical interest. And I guess I slipped back a century more or less into, into the 17th. At that point, I applied to doctoral programs and ended up at Duke. Um, and I, I think I went there with a fairly open mind as to, as to what I was going to study. Mm-hmm. In fact, I think it's good, a good idea for aspiring doctoral students not to have a topic in mind when they start off because their mind's going to change. Um, at Duke, my advisor became David Steinmetz, who did mostly early Reformation, had a Calvin seminar or Lucas seminar, did history of exegesis, also did an English Reformation course. Sure. And I'm not exactly sure why I started to focus on English Reformation, but I have a pretty good idea of of what got me into my dissertation topic. I read an essay by Basil Hall called Calvin Against the Calvinists. Mm Mm-hmm. And I found it interesting. I said, my goodness, you know, did Theodore Beza cause all this trouble with this little document? And I should read Beza, I should read Perkins. And I read Perkins, and I said, this just doesn't fit the document. And I started reading other people from that era, other thinkers like Ursinus and Zonke. I said, this theory just doesn't fit the material. Sure. And... That's really what got me interested. Mm-hmm. The, 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 the datum that the, the secondary literature was not doing justice to the complexity of the documents. Right. And I think that's really what's driven my research interest for most of my, my life. So the disconnect between the full panoply of the primary source and some secondary source analyses, which may not be grounded enough in the complete view of a particular yeah. document? Would and, that and, be a fair... And also, yeah, and also finding the secondary sources to be, I would say, unnaturally biased by certain strains of 20th century theology. Sure. That they were reading it back positively or negatively mm-hmm. into the past and not letting the documents speak for themselves. So the danger of having constructed a theory and then reading it into the document yes. rather than starting the other way around, yes. starting with the document and then figuring out what the idea is from yes, that point. precisely. Yeah. And it's always, I think, been a risk in Reformation studies. I mean, if you go further back, right, confessional Reformation studies, that was how it was done. Yeah. Um, yeah. You have the Protestant view think, and you have the Catholic view, and it's I very think set. My, my college, university training stood me in good stead because I, I went to Queens College, Sydney University of New York, 
which was quite a secular institution. Mm -hmm. And I often, well, I sometimes tease folks that my, I grew up Lutheran, and my original teachers in a parochial school were all Lutheran. Mm -hmm. And once I went to high school in Sydney University, uh, my best teachers were all Reformed. Right. Reformed Jewish. Judish, exactly. So that they did not have a stake in a theological reading mm -hmm. of, of the Reformation or mm -hmm. of Calvin. Um, I don't think they were biased in any way against it. Right. They just wanted to find out what the documents said. Um, my major advisor in history in college was a student of Paul Oscar Christeller. Right. So that I had this strong sense of what was going on prior to the Reformation. Um, I already had in, in, my, in my reading a sense that scholasticism was primarily a method. In fact, I may have said this before to you, but one of the great surprises of my career has been that the notion that scholasticism is primarily a method is something that a lot of people think is original to me. <laughs> the and Mueller it, thesis. It just isn't. It just isn't. And I did footnote where I got it from, but, uh -huh. um, but people no, we'll don't pay attention. No one's paying attention to that particular no. thesis. It's quite interesting, isn't it? So what are you working on at the moment? Actually, and this is, this is a curiosity, um, back to the, my studies, my first dissertation topic that I didn't write was on William Perkins. Okay. And I just broadened it out by reading others, and my latest manuscript is on William Perkins. Excellent. So it's coming back to Perkins. In fact, I'm, I've, I've got a short article on Perkins. This one is more on grace rather than predestination. And there's a lot of ongoing interest in Perkins, in yes. the Puritans. Yes. Where do you think that's coming from, that there's such a big focus on Puritans and Puritan theology at the moment? I'm not really sure. Um, I think on the intellectual history side, well, actually, there are two sides to it. On the intellectual history side, there is a massive availability of a lot of good material. Yes. And people have been searching for something to do other than the standard research in early modern intellectual yep. history. Yep. And so the time is ripe for this. Mm -hmm. um, and the fact that the Puritan material is in English makes it more accessible to a lot of people. To a wide um, range of yeah. scholars. There, yep. there's, there's less interest, although it's building, in the continental writers. Mm -hmm. And those who work on the Puritans tend to read only what they wrote in English right. and not what was put into Latin. Right. So that there is, there's the, the linguistic issue and the availability issue that is attracting intellectual historians. Mm -hmm. And then I think that there's also this other clientele where conservative reform folk, again because it's in English, are finding the Puritans incredibly congenial yes. as, a, as a theological source. Yep. And so that, 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 that explains a more popular side of it, but it also may explain why people from Reformed evangelical backgrounds look to do Puritan doctoral dissertations. Yes, it is, it is a very strong theme. You can just sort of yes. feel that pull again and again. If it's not Calvin, it's the Puritans. Yes. It doesn't seem to be much otherwise, and not among the students I've seen anyhow. And that's even at the master's level in terms of their areas yes. of interest. So if you had graduate students who say, well, I'd like to go on to doctoral level studies in historical theology and the Reformation, what sort of recommendations would you have for them in terms of 
preparation, directions, places? What, what would you tell them if they came to you for advice? I think one of the first things that they should try to do, if, particularly if they're in a master's program and doing some initial kinds of research, or even in a good bachelor's degree where they have history courses where they can do some writing, is to get themselves into the primary materials mm -hmm. and begin to make a really careful distinction between the serious intellectual history and the theologized materials that are done with an agenda. Yes. And then as, as they move forward, having begun to make that distinction, ask themselves, who are the people who are writing the good academic material, mm -hmm. the real intellectual history that deals with the ideas in their context? And then see if those people are mentors in doctoral programs. Yes. And then, of course, then the next step is to check out the doctoral program and see what kind of seminars they have. Yes. If any. Yes. And in terms of preparation language-wise or skills that they should acquire, are there recommendations you'd have for people? I mean, how important is it to know French or German or another non-English language? No. I, I think you do need to have a grip on other scholarly modern foreign la foreign languages. Yes. So, and, and French and German are standard. I I've always said to students that they should be allowed to do French and Dutch mm -hmm. because if they're interested in in Puritanism, Reformed theology, there's more literature in Dutch than there is in German. Yes. And with with not too much burden, you can learn the one after you've learned the other. Correct. Then they do have to do Latin. Because even the English writers that they may want to study were multilingual folk, yes, um, quite adept in Latin, yes, and the 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 major thinkers did write in Latin, absolutely. So you can't avoid Latin, and and even if you're looking at a, at a say a Puritan type, um, or let's say an English Reform type, not necessarily Puritan. Mm -hmm. um, even if that person didn't himself write in Latin, he's reading works in Latin, and you need to be able to master his bibliography to a certain extent. Yes. So you need to know who he's reading. Absolutely. And that makes it really yes. important to have those skills. So you've been very involved in the Post-Reformation Digital Library, this plan to have amazing amounts of already digitized materials, searchable, organized, findable by people. Um, and across the board, I think there's more and more of a trend to have digitized collections. And then we have something like the Meter Center, which is a physical location and a physical collection. Can, what can you say about the importance of something like the Meter Center in a world that is increasingly digitized when it comes to scholarly resources? I think there, 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 are, there are two aspects of the importance of a place like the Meter Center. The first one is simply material in that the meter center and, and other places like it will have on-site hard copy collections that either are not digitized or are not easily accessible in, in one place. Yes. So that even if all of the monographs in the meter center were digitized, and they're not, mm -hmm. it would take you forever to download them all from Google and Internet Archive and where else, wherever sure. else. Then, of course, the Media Center has the article file, which is, again, some of that material is out there digitized in databases. 
but it would take you forever to find it. Mm -hmm. And there, there is an enormous value in having those materials easily accessible, visible in one place. Yes. And then, of course, the Media Center is not oblivious to the digital materials. Yes. So that when you study there, you not only have this massive hard copy collection on site that would be difficult to duplicate, but you also have access to early English books online, 18th century collections online, and PRDL. Yes. So that the Meter Center offers a composite that is really the best of both worlds. Yep. And so materially, there's a big advantage. And then also, attitudinally, th there's almost intangible value of studying in one place in relation to other people who are studying yes. similar materials in that place. Yep. You not only have potentially a dialogue that you wouldn't have elsewhere, and of course, when the Meter Center has an able director, there is advice from the director on site yes. that you can get immediately. Yep, the curator, the staff, and so on. And, and then, to, then beyond that, there's also the, the bonus of meeting people and making connections yep. in your own field. Yep. So put all that together, and th there's, there's, a, there's a real importance of having significant places to study that provide the place, the scholarly contact, and also the, 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 the material substance. Yeah, and I'm, I mean, it seems to me that whether it's the Meter Center or whether it's other centers who do Reformation studies, to have a place that collects and brings together people as well as materials, it says something about the continued importance of the Reformation period that, I mean, you can find lots of things online, but it's here, there, and everywhere, and That's it's right. scattered in 15 right. locations. To have one space says something about the institutional value, that the institution says, this is important, this matters. Yes. We're going to say something about its ongoing value by investing in a center to collect and to bring together people and collections to yes, really and, and maintain that. maintaining that. Yeah, <clears throat> yeah. It's not a one-off thing, but it's an ongoing, no, no. ongoing process. No, another another place that I experienced this when I was teaching out in California at Fuller was mm -hmm. the Huntington Library. Yes, where they have their own journal, they have visiting scholars, they have a rare book library that probably includes almost everything that's in Ebo. Wow. Plus a lot of continental material. Wow. Um, and it's all available hands-on. And then they have a reference reading room that is literally an, a medieval, early modern reference room that includes whole sections on the history of printing, mm -hmm. uh, as was one example. And, and that kind of place, again, the resource is there. It's all put together for you. Yes. So you don't have to do all this hunting to find it and gather it. And then in addition, there's a scholarly connection. You meet somebody. I met Patrick Collinson there years Wonderful. ago. Yep. So these um, contacts you can yeah. kind of build from yeah. there. I think that's that's something the Meter Center has been doing as well. So as you look at the field of Reformation, of, of historical theology in the Reformation era, and you've been active in this field for a number of years, what what trends do you see? What have you seen that sort of changed or, or come to the fore that people should pay attention to? I think if you go back a couple decades, 
back into an era where a lot of theological historians were doing what you might call confessional history. Yes. There developed a, a, a real war in the um, academic societies between the confessionalizing theologian types doing history and the social historian. Yes. And, they, and each side had a real case to make against the other. Mm -hmm. Because on the one hand, the confessional historians didn't know much and didn't care much about the context of the people about whom they were writing. Yes. On the other hand, the social historians didn't know anything about the thought of the people yep. about whom they were writing. Well, I think that warfare is largely over, and there's been a lot of learning on both sides. Mm -hmm. And if you, know, if you want to be an intellectual historian of the Reformation, you, you now are obliged to understand context. Yes. So that, for example, in, 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 in looking at William Perkins, I can't just do an, an, a theological analysis of his writings. I have to be attentive to why he's writing what he's writing in that particular context. Exactly. And I have to be alive to the issue, for example, that it may not be exactly right simply to think of him as a Puritan. Mm -hmm. Given that he thought of himself as a theologian and defender of the Elizabethan settlement. Right. So then he's a little bit of both. And being a little bit of both, though there are there are controversies and debates and attitudes in his time that impact what he's trying to say. Yes. And you have to see him in that context, otherwise you'll never get a rounded sense of, of what he means. Absolutely. And I think that's what we've seen with Calvin, too. There's yes. been oh, too yes. much Calvin done where it's almost Calvin floating on a cloud yes. thinking his thoughts. And the fact that Calvin is in conversation with his peers, with his contemporaries, with past generations of thinkers, and people like Tony Lane and others have really brought that out, yes. to how important that is to understand his dialogue partners. I think, obviously, with Perkins, the same, same, the same applies. Absolutely. So... We have Reformation studies as a field. It's active in many ways. I'm going to actually present at the next 16th century studies. Um, uh, there's going to be a session on the history of Calvinism, Calvin studies over the last 50 years or so, and I'm doing the social history side. Uh, I think Eric de Boer is doing the theology side or someone. Anyhow, there's, there's going to be this conversation. As you look at the field, are there themes within the theological um, side of Calvin studies that you would say really have perhaps need more attention or have been done too much? Or, you know, as you look at the field of Calvin studies, what do you see, I guess? Well, I think what I would say has been done absolutely too much and should simply stop <laughs> are books titled Theology of Calvin or Theo Calvin's Theology of X, Grace, Predestination, whatever. Um, that just look at Calvin. I, I remember not long ago, now I don't normally read reviews of my books. Um, I got that advice a long, long time ago from Gordon Rupp, and he was quite right. Uh, but I chanced on reading when I said, oh well, because I was bibliographizing the author of the review, and he reviewed one of my books, actually my unaccommodated Calvin, and was quite upset that I critiqued certain books that he called magisterial studies. Mm -hmm. I in no way said that they were bad studies of Calvin's thought. What I did say 
was that they totally lack context. Yes. So the studies of Calvin that just do Calvin, studies of Calvin that just do Calvin only in English, mm -hmm. are entirely problematic. Yeah. What is needed is not only doing Calvin in his own languages and then translating them in English. No, I'm, and I don't mean you shouldn't use translations. I think yeah. it's fine. But you need to look at the original. But also ask the question, what is going on in Calvin's mind in terms of what his sources are, what his contemporaries are saying? Mm -hmm. I actually think one of, a, one of the really good avenues into trying to understand Calvin is to stop reading Calvin for a while and read Vermigli. Okay. Because there's been a lot less scholarship on Vermigli. Yes. A lot less distortion. Yeah. And it's easy to get him into context and then go back to Calvin and say, aha, what he's saying there is not really all that original. Mm -hmm. And it is connected. One way to see those connections is to work more in his correspondence. Yep. Where you, 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 you at least see with whom he's connecting. Yep. And he does have some significant theological correspondence, certainly with Vermigli. And, and also with um, Jan Lasky. Yes. And, there's, there's inter and Bullinger. And there's interplay back and forth. It's not as if these people sit at Calvin's feet and learn from him. They argue with him. Yes. They tell him when he's wrong. And he learns from them. Mm -hmm. And, and that, that kind of scholarship on Calvin, looking at correspondence, looking at contemporaries, um, asking questions, looking at what gets published in Geneva. Yes. Um, I noticed the other day, um, I have long looked at Andreas Hyperius of Marburg, who is on the borderline of reform, but he's quite reformed in his theology, and he wrote a Latin methodus. Yes. Published toward the end of his life, um, and only half of it came out, so it's, it's half of the theological sure. system. But what I noticed the other day that interested me, and I even found it somewhat amusing, is that Hyperius Methodus was translated as a lieu commun and published in Geneva right around um, early 1560s. Okay. As if they needed a real theological system published in French. Though I know somebody out there is squirming about my, th my implications for Calvin. But Hyperius is more technical. Yes. Hyperius is a kind of a bridge to the later era. Mm -hmm. and, and you can see why they say, well, yeah, we like the Institutes. It's, it's, it is what it says. It's a wonderful manual for teaching prospective clergy. Mm -hmm. And how do you understand scripture in relation to present-day controversies? But then there's another step. And Hyperius is beginning to take that step. So he gets published in French in Geneva. Yep. Very interesting. Yep. Um, and then that also raises the issue of, of the institutes. You, you can't look at it just as a, um, just in isolation as a major theological treatise. Yep. It's full of polemics. And the, the opponents are important. Yep. Because he's in conversation. He's in conversation. Just like we no. want to encourage our students to engage in that conversation in their scholarship. No. So Calvin himself is also involved no. in a conversation no. with his no. and, and colleagues. One, one of the peers. things that, that I learned by observation from David Steinmetz mm -hmm. was a, a certain kind of objectivity. Students would always say that when Steinmetz lectured on a, on a topic, you always thought 
he, he believed it is true. Steinmetz could lecture on Calvin, and you say, this man is a Calvinist. In fact, people read his books, say, ah, what a Calvinist. David Steinmetz was a Methodist. <laughs> and it was the same when he lectured on Servetus. You, the, the object is to give the, each thinker a chance to state what they wanted to say without making the biased judgment about who's on the path to present-day truth. Actually, exactly. And I think that's very difficult for people in the field of theology, yes. more so than, say, social yes. history. It's much more of a challenge yes. and just seems to be a, a no. general problem. Are there other things that you wanted to highlight or other aspects, other projects you're working on, things elsewhere you thought, oh, I should really talk about this yet? Oh, well, I, I, I will talk a little bit, I guess, maybe about, about PRDL. Because mm -hmm. um, I, I, you know, I work with the former students and colleagues who are all at least, well, maybe two generations younger than I am. And they don't see how wonderful this is, even though they're closely involved in it and think it's great. Mm -hmm. I'm like a kid in a candy store. <laughs> you know, I, I can look back to doctoral studies where I either had to use extant microfilm series, like Ebo on microfilm, and the Duke Rare Book Room. And if I couldn't get it there, unless I wanted to travel at great expense, I couldn't get it. Yep. Now you can get it. You can, and not only can you get it, you can get way more than you wanted. And, and I think one of the great challenges for doing research in the future is the mass of material. It's the drinking from the fire hose effect, yes. isn't it? How, how do you focus on a topic? There's a real danger that people become minutia experts. Yep. And, and one, of the, one of the questions is, is to keep the larger context, the larger view, somewhere in, in, within your focus so that when you're looking at this massive minutia, you can make some sense out of them. Yep. And not just the narrow sense of what's going on in one person's head again. Mm -hmm. Yep. And it's, it is challenging because there's just so much out there. I mean, my sense is that it's time and more than time to give attention to folks after Calvin. Oh, yes. Um, because we stop in 1564, and then it's kind of, who knows, not much, or kind of going downhill or other things. I think there's a lot to look at when we get to later 16th into the 17th century that really could do with coming up for air a yeah. little more yeah. on its own terms. On its own terms. Not so much, is it faithful to Calvin, is it not faithful yeah. to Calvin? Let's, let's just leave that aside. Let's yeah. try and understand what their debates in their context were, what, what's going on at that because point. Because they're, they're, well, I mean, you know I've written about this, but the, 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 the later reform writers, late 16th century, early 17th century, are not at all worried about being specifically faithful to Calvin. Mm -hmm. They're really worried about operating within their reform confessional context, yes. um, doing exegesis, um, and, and debating the debates of their day. Yes. Some of which includes defending Calvin, given that some of the things he said were just a tad hyperbolic. Yes. And, and not, not measured and not stated in terms of standard scholastic distinctions. Not probably intended also to, to be taken as the final word on this issue. Yes, yes. But perhaps we tend to do that. Yeah. Richard, thank you so much. It's been really a joy oh, to sit it's down It's been with a you pleasure. Thanks thank, for, you. thank you for asking me. <laughs>